When someone begins to question their faith, the last thing church leaders want to do is say the wrong thing or handle it in a way that will further push them away. With so many historical concerns or doctrinal questions, what is a leader supposed to do? I'm happy to report that Leading Saints is here to help with the Questioning Saints Library. This is a full library of 20 plus presentations related to how to minister to an individual who is questioning their faith. We cover topics like how to answer tough questions, maintaining relationships when someone leaves the church, and how to embrace doctrinal ambiguity. If you want to review all the sessions from the Questioning Saints Library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership-related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org 14. Hey, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. Now, for many of you that are brand new uh, to Leading Saints, it's important that you know that Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization, 501c3, dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation. We get so much positive feedback on the podcast, our virtual conferences, the articles on our website. You definitely got to check it out at leadingsaints.org. And on their homepage at leadingsaints.org, you can actually find the top six most downloaded episodes to the podcast. So if you're new, like the content, want to jump in to some of our most popular episodes, head there after you listen to this episode. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the Leading Saints podcast. And uh, man, a big shout out for this episode to Mary McLaughlin, who connected me and Tyler Johnson who is my interviews with uh, today, just a phenomenal discussion. Because here's the thing, with with being a church leader, especially leading young single adults, you know, or young people in general, I mean, this rising generation, even teenagers, there's sort of this feeling of like, man, we're losing them, right? And we testify, we try and do all the things, the activities, and we, nothing seems to be working. At least that's how it feels like at times. And Tyler Johnson, uh, who teaches at Stanford, just obviously a brilliant gentleman who can really articulate and f- put a framing around what it is we're looking at when it comes to this rising generation and how do we talk to them? How do we understand them? How do we even approach them with empathy when they just don't get it, right? At least that's a feeling there, there is. And so you're going to love this conversation. This is going to be passed around. And especially if you know a, a YSA bishop, bishopric member, stake presidency member, Oh, wow. This would be one to drop in an email and uh, send off to them or really anybody with with teenagers, with uh, young people coming back from missions and whatnot. Uh, Powerful episode. So let's jump into it. Enough talking about it. So here's my interview with Tyler Johnson. Tyler Johnson, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Kurt. I, I appreciate the chance to be here. Yeah, this is fun. Now, you are a, a professor at Stanford, or, or how do you, when people ask you what you do, how do you uh, articulate that? Yeah, so I'm what's called a medical oncologist. So I'm the kind of doctor who gives chemotherapy to people who have cancer. Oh, wow. And then, yes, I'm on the faculty at the School of Medicine at Stanford. Nice. And what was the, I mean, did you always want to grow up and be a doctor? Is that the idea? No, I wouldn't say that I always thought about that. I think that I first seriously thought about it when I was maybe senior in high school or a freshman in college. And then 
kind of solidified the idea when I got back from my mission. I went on my mission after my freshman year of college. And so in sophomore year, I kind of made the decision that of all of the options, doctor seemed like the best fit. So I made the decision that I was going to act like I was going to become a doctor until something happened to convince me not to become a doctor. And here we are. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess nothing ever happened to convince me that way. That's nice. And did you, when did the the idea of, of teaching come into all this? Or did you imagine yourself in a hospital for your career? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I was so it takes, you know, a zillion years to become a full-fledged <laughs> doctor, right? So right. just to paint the path, I so I finished college in 2005, then I went to medical school till 2009, then I did general internal medicine residency until 2012, then I did sort of a teaching year called a chief residency from 2012 to 2013, then I did oncology fellowship from 2013 to 2016, and then I was finally a fully-fledged doctor starting in 2016. Oof. So it was, I think, 11 years after college. And um, when I was in my, when I had just finished my chief resident year, so that would have been about eight years after I finished college, I looked back and realized that everything, literally every job I had had since the time I graduated from high school had involved teaching. So I had been a TA in like four or five different capacities when I was at BYU. Then I was a TA again when I was in medical school. Then when I was in residency, my favorite part of residency was teaching the other residents. Then I did this chief resident year, which was pretty much all about teaching. And I said, oh, gosh, it looks like I must really like teaching because I just keep doing it over and over and over again. And so then that was sort of a moment of recognition to me to say, okay, if I like it that much, and if I'm gravitating that much towards it natively, then I should probably think about how I can really build that into my career. And I was, you know, feel really fortunate that I was able to do that. And that's, I spent about half of my time caring for patients and about half of my time teaching in one capacity or another. Wow. And so now do you still, obviously you have your teaching workload, but do you still practice, you know, put on the white jacket and be a doctor? <laughs> Yep. Yeah. So I, I spend about six weeks, eight weeks a year leading a team of medical trainees, taking care of patients in the hospital. And then I also have a team here at the Stanford Cancer Center where we see patients a day and a half a week as well. Wow. Wow. So I mean, and you're in the thick of it with, with cancer and patients and things like that. Yep. We take care of patients with GI cancers. And as I said, there, you know, anyone who has had cancer knows that the it takes a team to take care of a cancer patient. And so I sort of supervise the part of that team that is responsible for providing chemotherapy. Oh, wow. Well, I hope I have, never have to see you just like everybody else. But my mother is a survivor of colon cancer. And so I just turned 40 oh. this past year. So you know what that means. The colonoscopy I, I, parade begins. Yep, yeah, I do know what that means. And I'm glad that your mom is doing well. And that's yeah. one of the kinds of cancer that I take care of. So random question. There's so much like, cancer awareness and fundraising and things, are we ever going to cure this thing? Or is it more complicated <laughs> than that? That's a, that's a complicated question. I mean, I think what I would say is that there are, so the most recent good news in cancer care is that there has been an, a revolution over the last 10 years in terms of using what's called immunotherapy to fight cancer. And so that is basically harnessing the power of your own immune system to fight cancer cells. And that has made marginal strides forward in most kinds of cancer. And in some kinds of cancer, it's been absolutely transformative. 
And so I think that, you know, and the hope is that that's just a harbinger of even better things to come because there are still certainly elements of utilizing immunotherapy that we don't fully understand yet. But so all that is to say that things are clearly getting better, but, you know, the issue is that the possibility of the development of cancer is unfortunately written into the deepest architecture of how our bodies are put together. And Mm -hmm. so it's unlikely that we will ever be fully rid of cancer, no matter how much the technology improves. Well, at least we have Jesus, right? I mean... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's the that's the hope we need and, and he's there ready to give it. So that's Yes, good. <laughs> even even when even when other sources of hope fail. Nice. So maybe just give us some of your experience at, before we hit record you talked about and this will lead into our our discussion today but just some of your experience in church leadership since you've been teaching at at Stanford and and the wards there and especially the the student wards or YSA wards that are available. Yeah, so Stanford has two two young adult wards. There is a younger one and an older one. It's a little bit unusual because for space constraint reasons, the younger one only includes people up until they turn, well, up until 28, age 28. And so I have taught Institute in one form or another in Palo Alto, sometimes off campus at the across the street Institute building and sometimes on campus. But I've been teaching for the better part of a decade. I don't remember exactly. how. And is that like a church calling there, like some seminary teachers is a calling? I yeah, so it, it's, kind of, it's sort of varied over time. So for a while I was, yeah, so it, I'm, to be clear, I've never been in a church employee. I'm not a CES or SNI yeah. employee, but for a while I had a formal calling. And then at other times I've done it as just a sort of a thing that I do because of the connections that I have with students on Stanford campus. And then I was also in the bishopric of the younger of the two Stanford wards for a number of years, and then also just finished being the bishop of the Stanford ward here, I don't know, six months or so ago. Oh, nice. Nice. And was that like a three-year term, yeah. I guess, like better? Yeah, term? well, the terms vary a little bit. So the when I was in the bishopric, it was a little bit longer than three years. And then when I was the bishop, it was a little bit shorter than three years. But in theory, it's around three years. Yeah. That's sort of the, the norm. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to uh, maybe guide our audience down the journey of how we got connected. And a big shout out to Mary McLaughlin, who uh, first emailed me. I got this random email. This was back in August this year. And she said, all the emails said is, you have to you have to have Tyler Johnson on your podcast. There's nothing out there like this. And it is life changing. And so, I mean, the energy was coming through the email. So I was intrigued. So I said, what should I know about him? Is he a Latter-day Saint? Is What's his expertise? And she said, he's a Latter-day Saint. He's a doctor, institute teacher at Stanford University. He spent a lot of time contemplating why young adults are leaving the church in large numbers. His insights have completely caused a shift in my thinking. He teaches about just America and the importance of this narrative to the rising generation and how we can approach them with integrity and in different ways where they can feel safe in staying instead of leaving the church. He also taught about belief and knowing and how the language we use can affect individuals having a faith crisis. I can't wait to hear what he has to say today. And she was at Education Week. And I said, well, do you know him personally? Can you connect me to him? She says, I don't know him personally. I just promise you that if you will, that this will be the the most listened to podcast ever. We need this. Revolutionary. So there's your standard, Tyler. (laughs) Shout out. I mean, for those listening on a podcast, I'm over here shaking my head and rolling my eyes. As much as I love the compliments, let's bring the expectations all right, all way right. down. Okay. I thought you'd enjoy that. Sort of the, anyways, How thank you, Mary. You might say something mildly interesting. That okay. seems like a better, we'll start Why don't from we that start there. <laughs> I mean, it does teach at Stanford. You think you'd have, you know, you'd have something, but anyways. Uh, well, we'll, that, that, that's also it. Well, never mind. <laughs> 
Okay. That's a whole nother podcast. Is that what you're saying, Doug? Yeah. I'm, I'm just saying that anybody who's expecting anything like what she just described is almost <laughs> certain to be disappointed. So, all right, here we go. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, I'm sure there'll, there'll be something we can, we can talk about and explore here. So you presented at education week. How did that come to be? And then what was the process of you coming to the topic that you covered and, and maybe in more detail, what was that topic? Yeah. So the first thing I just want to make clear, because Education Week is very particular about this, I want to make clear that I am not here presenting exactly what I presented at Education Week, which I think they care about because they don't want people who teach at Education Week then going out into the world right. and saying, oh, look, what I'm saying is approved by BYU or the church right. or something. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. I'm glad you mentioned We will that. cover some of the same themes, but I don't want to even imply tacitly their, you know, sort of stamp of approval for anything that I'm going to say. So I just want to put that out there. But the genesis for the lecture, so I presented a series of four lectures there, and the four lectures were dealing with how we can teach young people about the gospel in a way that is more likely to resonate with them, or that is more likely to allow them to connect with the power that the restored gospel has. And the genesis of this is that it's an open secret, if it's even a secret at all, that many young people are leaving the church. Now, I want to be clear that I respect every person's faith journey, wherever that takes them, whether that keeps them in the church or whether that takes a person out of the church. Some of the people I love the most in the world have spiritual paths that have taken them out of the church, and I have nothing but respect, love, and admiration for them. So I want to be clear about that. At the same time, it is also true that in so in the midst of all of the things that I was mentioning that I, I've done here over the last however many years, I have spent many, 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 many hours talking with young people and about the concerns that weigh most heavily on their hearts and as young church members. And what has often struck me is that sometimes I feel as though the restored gospel is like this oasis of life-giving water in the middle of the desert. And yet we have a, a lot of young people who want to, who are desperately thirsty and just are longing for that life-saving water. And yet they are over somewhere else in the desert drinking from a mirage and they keep getting a mouthful of sand. And so then they leave because they say, well, I, you know, I don't want to drink sand for the rest of my life. And so they leave. And so all I'm saying is that I want us to do a better job of representing the power and the beauty of the doctrines of the restored gospel so that at least those who leave, leave having fully recognized the beauty of what is being left behind. Now, I want to be clear, this is not, I'm not, I do not subscribe to the idea that people who no longer find faith or meaning in the restored gospel, that that's because they are lazy or uninterested or apathetic or whatever. That's not what I'm suggesting. To the contrary, what I'm suggesting is that oftentimes the problem is that we don't do a good job of representing what the deep, transformative, transcendent power of the gospel is. And so in effect, what I was teaching at Education Week, and I have also written about this and, and whatever else, is that I want us, I want to help us. I think I understand many young people and where they're coming from well enough that I hope that I can 
sort of serve as a bridge to say to people who are often older and in leadership positions in, or teaching positions or whatever, in effect, to say to them, here is what I need you to understand about what makes young people click so that you can then help them, help the young people to understand why the truths of the restored gospel are powerful and beautiful. Yeah, that's so helpful. Is there is there a specific like, and I know this can kind of get... Uh tricky at times because nobody wants to, you know, we love our faith community and our traditions and things. And so I know you and myself included, we're not looking to throw a specific leader or action or thing under the bus in order to prove a point here. But what, what's an example of maybe where we failed to really teach the power of the gospel and uh, to young people or others? Yeah. So one good example that I will put out there is that I think it's very comforting or maybe not, maybe comforting is the wrong word. It's convenient. It's easy for us to think, oh, well, if a person walks away from the gospel, that's because, and I mentioned this stereotype earlier, they were just not interested. They were apathetic. They were lazy. They were deceived. They read internet sources that were not you know, nuanced enough or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But my experience I'm sure that that's true. Like, you know, obviously you can find apathetic people in any group or people who are apathetic about anything, right? So, I, I mean, I'm sure that there are people yeah. who, who leave out of apathy. But my experience is that most of the people that I have spent a lot of time at least talking to, it is, if anything, the opposite of that. It is that they are, they feel deeply, passionately about the importance of certain ethical things and when they perceive that church does not measure up to those ethical standards, that's actually the reason that they walk away. So we end up, so we often are over here thinking, oh, well, they must just not care. When in truth, the care is, or when, when in fact, the truth is that they care, that they are leaving precisely because they care so much. Right. And, and I think that that's a good example of where we have a, a gap in our understanding. Yeah. And, and sometimes this shows up in the, I think naturally, and this is just, this isn't just our, the fault of our faith community, but just as humans, it's easy to fall into an us and them conversation when we're around like-minded people, whether that's in Sunday school or elsewhere. I remember yeah. I, recently I was with my wife in a group discussion and I leaned over to her and I said, we've officially entered the us versus them conversation. Like, and it happens, you know, with the best intentions and whatnot, but then we when do people do leave, then we like to throw these reasons behind it, right? Of of why they are leaving, and you know the apathy, or the or even you know I've heard it said as far as though they they have a desire to sin and they'd rather just leave and sin rather than stick around and feel guilty, right? And, and again, you can find examples of all these things, all these uh, outliers, but definitely not the norm of why the experience of people leaving. And I would say too that that us versus them dynamic, if anything, is strengthened and exacerbated in church communities. Mm-hmm. Because if you think of a lot of the words and ideas that we use to think about ourselves, they are very heavy with that, right? So we talk about ourselves as a peculiar people, right? Or we talk about ourselves as needing to be gathered into Zion. Or we, you know, if you go through and, and think about how often we talk about the world, right? All of those things are, in a sense, setting up an us versus them dynamic. Now, to be clear, it's also the case that, you know, some of that in-group cohesion is what makes being a Latter-day Saint so powerful, right? It's what makes it so that I can, you know, I could show up on a college campus 
in Philadelphia in a city I had, I'm not sure I had ever visited before when I went to medical school and immediately know that I belonged to a group, right? Because the war just sort of enveloped me, right? It was like a yeah. cell reaching out and bringing something into its mortars. So I'm not trying to say that, that any of these things are bad, but it's just to say that we have such a strong inclination in that direction that we have to be careful that it doesn't become insular or exclusive or make it so that people who decide to walk other spiritual paths feel like they're no longer worthy of our company or that feel like we think that they're no longer worthy of our company. Yeah. And here's the tricky thing about this, especially when we look at it from a, a leadership perspective, because I think it's, I think most people listening can sort of nod their head like, yeah, I've seen that. I understand what they're saying. But as a church leader, it's like, what am I supposed to do about that? You know, and of course, there's those moments, you know, it's where, you know, you stand up in the middle of a Sunday school class and what say, halt this speech, you know, like, I mean, what advice would you give to leaders as far as avoiding perpetuating this type of, of dynamic? So, yeah, this gets to something that I think is, so the answer I want to give here is a little bit, requires a little bit of backstory in a way that I okay. hope your readers will forgive. So this will sound like a strange thing, but if leaders who are listening to, or parents for that matter, or anybody who's listening to this podcast, take one thing away from this episode, I want you to go to Google and I want you to Google George Packer Atlantic for Americas. So I'll say it again, George <laughs> Packer Atlantic for Americas. Yeah, and we'll, so, we can link to it too in the show notes. Yeah, and, oh, and if you can link to it even better. Okay. So this is an article that was written by a staff writer from The Atlantic named George Packer that was published, I think, in the summer of 2021, something like that. No relation to and Elder Packer. <laughs> as far as I'm aware, who knows? Maybe I'm sure, okay. I'm sure that in the genealogical vaults, there's probably one if you go back far enough. But So I have to say that this article has been transformative in the way that I think about approaching young people in anything, but including in the church. And it gives a sort of a structure to something that has been that has been intuitively true to me for a long time. So let me explain a little bit of what yeah, I mean here. So what George Packer does, he so everybody and their dog, right, for the past five or ten years has been observing that American culture is polarized and divided in a way that it never has been before, right? And you can read this in like any article about American politics from the last however many years. So what George Packer tries to do is he tries to say, well, okay, let's take that as a given. I'm going to try to do a taxonomy of what do those divisions look like? Like if we just if we just accept the fact that America is really divided, let's try to talk about what are those divisions. And he suggests that America has effectively divided itself into four parts. And those four parts help us to explain and think about the way that we view ourselves or the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves as Americans. And so the I just want to talk very briefly about what those four sections or what those four sections of America are, because I think that they are they're really important in understanding how we relate to our youth. So the first three I'll explain very briefly and then the last one I'll explain in a little bit more detail. So the first one is what he calls free America. And free Americans are people who we might think of as libertarians. Basically, they're people who the thing that matters the most to them is for government to sort of get out of the way and let them and other people do their thing. Mm -hmm. The second are real Americans. And real Americans are people who basically say, 
what America needs is it needs to go back to those good old fashioned American values that were, you know, in power 50 years ago. And if we could just go back to that way of seeing things, then America would be so much better off. So for instance, if you're a Donald Trump supporter, if you think about the term make America great again, Mm. right? The again is an expression of that desire to go back to the way that things were before. Mm -hmm. The third section is what he calls smart America. And smart America is basically people who say what we need is a meritocracy. If everybody could just be rewarded according to their intelligence and hard work and initiative and et cetera, then that would be the thing that would really, that would be the thing that would really make America flourish, right? So those three, I think were the, the main constituents of America up until five to seven years ago. And then five to seven years ago, we have the emergence of what I think is by far the most important of these sections for this discussion today, which is just America. And just to be clear, when we say just America here, we're talking about just as in justice, right? Right. So these are people for whom the degree to which America is just or not just is the single most important thing. And so what these mostly young Americans do is that they look at the world that was left to us for, by example, the smart Americans, right? So if you think back to the late 1990s or the early 2000s, you had this group of people who really did seem to think that if we could just make America into a perfect meritocracy where people were rewarded based on the things that, you know, based on how hard they worked and whatever, then we would have a just society. The just Americans look at that and say, this was a disaster, right? Like you told us that smart America was going to bring us a flourishing society. Instead, what just America brought us, or what, I'm sorry, smart America brought us was the housing collapse of 2008, 2009, what they view as unnecessary Iraq and maybe even Afghanistan wars, the, you know, a bunch of debacles in US foreign policy, a bunch of economic problems, a bunch of unemployment, a bunch of, you know, anyway, and they go on and on and on. And so first of all, they say, look, smart America did not bring about the sort of the good society in the way that they promised us that it would. And then furthermore, they say, look, we know that people say that there's been a lot of progress for, for instance, for people of color and LGBT people and et cetera, et cetera, in the United States. But first of all, we need to look back at the deep and fundamental ways in which America has not been just throughout its history, a la slavery and Jim Crow laws and, you know, all those kinds of things. And then furthermore, we need to look at the fact that there's all kinds of data that shows that even now in 2022, there is, we are, American society is not just. And you can look at this. So just to give one brief example, there are recent studies that show that if you send out the identical resumes and you put the top one quote unquote white sounding name, and then at the top of the other one quote unquote black sounding name, and you send them to all the same employees, you will get a much higher invite for like an interview rate for the white sounding name than for the black sounding name, even though the qualifications are otherwise exactly the same. So members of Just America will point to that and, you know, we could cite a thousand other things like it and say, look, yes, okay, we don't have Jim Crow laws and yes, we don't have slavery anymore. But even though, even for all of the progress that America has supposedly made, we are still fundamentally an unjust society. And so just America basically says, look, I don't want you to talk to me about your, I don't want you to talk to me about anything in American society or politics, unless it is seen through the prism of whether it is making America a more just society. And my 
observation is that if we don't understand the mindset of just America, we will almost inevitably fail miserably in helping the gospel to resonate with young people because of course not you know it's not like young people fit into some sort of you know mono mold obviously there are different you know and there are young americans who are free americans and smart americans and everything else but there is good data to show that young people much more than their older counterparts belong to just america and if we don't understand the narrative of just america and the mindset of just americans it is going to be difficult if not impossible to help the truths of the gospel to appeal to them Mm, wow. Is it safe to say, because there's a lot of talk, especially, you know, in younger demographics about fairness, right? Is it easy to say that's synonymous with just like they want everything to be fair? And that's when maybe the the real Americans say, oh, you know, back in my day, you know, nothing was fair, you know, or that's just part of life, you know, fair doesn't exist. Or is that pushing it too much? And or can you switch no, those yeah, synonymous? Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, the thing that I would say is that it's not, you know, if you ask anybody who belongs to any of the four Americas, I think all of them care about all of the things. In other words, I think that just Americans care about freedom, and I think that free Americans care about justice. But the question is, what do you make the priority, right? Right, Or what do you, what are you going to, when push comes to shove, and you have to choose between the two, which one gets the upper hand? And so for just Americans, they would say, look, even if we have to decrease freedom in order to bring about a more just society, we are so tired of and we are so offended by the lack of equity and equality and justice that we see when we look in the world around us, that that has to get the priority. And if that has not been assured, we don't really want you to talk to us about anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And there is this sort of this battle of values at times. And and maybe this is too far off of the, the direction you're headed, but I saw this a lot maybe during the, the pandemic where as we were starting to come back, there would be a bishopric or a ward council who maybe valued just this spiritual experience and community higher than maybe some valued safety and health, right? And mm-hmm. so they would, you know, encourage everybody back to church. And some are thinking, you know, how could you, like, you could be putting people at risk by doing this. And again, nobody was like evil in this discussion or wanting to hurt people, but they were just valuing different things or uh, morals or different values, which are all good, just differently, right? Yeah. And no, and I actually think the pandemic is, is a great example in the sense that I agree with you. I mean, I, you know, personally, there were some views that some people took during the pandemic that I have difficulty reconciling with what anyway seemed to me to be good ethics. But Uh having said that, there was a wide range, you're absolutely right, of values where you could say, well, if I value this thing more, then I'm going to favor this policy. And if I value this thing more, I'm going to favor this policy. And I think we're actually still seeing the reconciliation about that process take place, right? So there's been a lot of, you probably have seen in the news, but over the last, I don't know, couple of weeks, there was just a, a large kind of survey set of the scores for children who are in school in the United States showed that there was a steep decline in reading and math and whatever after the period of the pandemic. And so even still now, you have a lot of people who are going back and saying, see, we told you that you should have opened the elementary schools more widely sooner because now look what happened because you didn't do that, right? Mm. Which again, 
it's a values question, right? Do you value more the theoretical protection that grandma might have by not having their grandson in their elementary school? Or do you value more the learning gains that are going to be realized by those young people being in school, right? And so, and I want to make clear too, that by the same token, when I explain the value system for the people who belong to Just America, the argument that I'm making is not that that's the best value system. And I'm not making the argument that leaders in the church need to buy into that value system. But what I am saying is that if we don't understand that value system and we don't understand the worldview that results from it, it is going to be almost impossible to relate to young people in a way that's meaningful to them. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but sort of when I, how I see this dynamic fail us by misunderstanding it is maybe an older, more seasoned bishop in his 40s, 50s, who has a deep uh, value and deep belief in profits, they, uh, you know, someone comes to them with a value or I'm sorry, a justice concern, you know, this isn't fair. And we sort of push on them the, our value of, well, you know, you, you just need to prioritize profits over this little concern you have. And then there's just, there's no way to win that, that dialogue. Is that fair to say? Yes. So in the sense that I think what, what usually does not work well is if you have a young person, of course, most young people are not going to use the words of saying, I'm a member of Just America and here I am in the bishop's (laughs) office, right? Right. But still, I think it's a useful framing. If you have a person who's a member of Just America and they come in to, you know, your office or, or your class or whatever, and they say, look, you know, I'm really, really concerned about equality and justice and anti racism and LGBT rights and whatever for these deeply moral reasons. And as a consequence of that, I am concerned about the racially based policy on temple and priesthood restrictions, or I'm really concerned about the way that LGBT people, especially were treated 30 years ago in the church, and even if to a lesser degree today in the church are treated or whatever. If they come in with those kinds of concerns and our response in effect is to say, let me explain to you why just America is wrong or why you shouldn't really care about the values of just America as much as you do, that is almost 100% guaranteed not to work. Because insofar as their belonging to just America is a reflection of values that they hold very, very deeply, trying to explain to someone why the values that they hold so deeply are wrong is not a very good way to win people to your cause. Yeah. Is it um, safe to say that this just America is more dominant in the younger demographic? Yeah, for sure. Okay. And some may say, well, listen, Tyler, like, you know, you remember the 60s, that was a wild time. And there was, I mean, just America existed and was running around like they'll just grow out of this. How would you respond to that? Yeah. So this is actually a really interesting question, I think. And to be clear, in fairness, we don't know the answer to that, right? There was a famous quote from Ronald Reagan who once said, if you're not liberal by the time you're 20, you don't have a heart. And if you're not conservative by the time you're 50, you don't have a brain, right? (laughs) So so some people would, and not that conservative and liberal exactly tracks with just America or not, but the point is just to say that there is this question about whether people are just, you know, going to, as you say, grow out of it. Mm -hmm. And the analogy to the 60s in some ways is a fair one. The I think the sort of, you know, hippie and surrounding culture in the 1960s was not exactly the same as what we see in Just America today, but there are some corollaries. I agree with you that there's there's something to that analogy. But here's the deal. 
even if it's true, even if that theoretical interlocutor is right, and even if it's true that young people are eventually going to grow out of it, it doesn't really matter if they grow out of it. If they cease to see the importance of the gospel in their lives when they're in their 20s, then the fact that they become Republicans when they're 45 or something is sort of a moot point. Hmm. Yeah. So where else do we begin with the being the leaders who can step into sort of the messiness of just America when when maybe we feel more like free America or real America or even smart America? Like Because there is this, you see it a lot that we almost don't even know what to do with it when our teenager who suddenly has these, you know, has several LGBTQ friends and is now trying to reconcile them with, you know, certain theology and doctrines we have. And, you know, we don't even know how to engage with it to have an empathetic heart towards what they're seeing. Or there may be an individual who comes out who's maybe a more prominent figure and leaves the church. And, you know, we see our, our young people cheering them on or, you know, supporting that or whatever. And we're like, well, yeah, of course we love them, but, you know, there's always that, yeah, we love them, but type of uh, approach. Uh, So any other thoughts as far as how leaders can even be brave enough to walk into this dynamic? Yeah. So a few thoughts. The first one is that I would just for whatever it's worth, I, I think that we have been conditioned to think that we have an obligation in many cases, as you just perfectly put it, to say, we love them, but I would offer that anytime we follow the statement, we love them with the conjunction, but (laughs) there's a problem Uh, (laughs) because that's not to say that we need to, it's not to say anything about dilution of doctrine or being, you know, quote unquote soft or anything else. It's just to say that if we're qualifying how much we love anybody, that's a problem. I would Mm -hmm. argue. I think that to your broader question, there is a way of there are a few things. So the first one is that I would offer up that anytime a anyone comes to us with a deeply felt question, we will do better to start by recognizing the virtuous impulse that underlies the question before we deal with the content of the question itself. That's really important. And Uh, let me, so it's important enough that I want to repeat it. When someone comes to us with a deeply felt question, we will almost always be better off by starting with recognizing the virtuous impulse behind the question before we start by dealing with the content of the question itself. So let Mm -hmm. me give a really good example. Let's say that a young person comes to an institute teacher, a Relief Society president, a young women's leader, a a bishop, whatever, and says, oh my gosh, my friend just told me that Joseph Smith was married to lots of different women and, and that, you know, some of them were already married to other people and some of them were really young. And is that really true? Like, that seems really sketchy to me. Like what? So You can imagine responding in two ways to that. Well, you can imagine responding in a lot of ways, but two ways (laughs) of thinking about responding to that concern. One would be to jump right into the content and say, well, but the thing you have to understand is that back then being married to someone who was young was not nearly as strange as it seems like it is now. And then the, you know, and anyway, go on and give a bunch of, if you even know those explanations, right. You could go on and give a bunch of that stuff. Which may or may not be true, right? Because it's like, but it's true. That doesn't matter if it's true or not, right? But the point I'm making is that even if you have a good substantive response, 
if you jump right into that kind of stuff, that may help to some degree in some cases, but it only gets you so far. But instead, I would argue that a better approach would be to say, wow, I can tell that this is really troubling you. Tell me, what is it that troubles you about this? Like, why why is this weighing so heavily on you? Now, you can probably guess the answer to that question, but still, right. it can be helpful to have the, the person articulate it. And then they might say, well, because, you know, I mean, gosh, I've been in, you know, let's say it's a young woman coming with this concern at 17. I've been in young women's for, you know, five years, and we've learned all about the importance of the law of chastity and et cetera, et cetera. And I just feel like this doesn't line up with that. And I just don't understand how the founder of our church could have been engaging in this kind of behavior that at least on its surface seems like, it, you know, it's not constant, whatever, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Then I think our first reaction is to say, wow, I love how much this matters to you because I can tell that this really matters to you for the right reasons. And it might sound a little funny for me to say, but I can tell that this matters to you precisely because your heart is so invested in doing the right thing. And you want to make sure that our prophets are also, you know, share that same, that same desire to do what's right. Now, after that, I'm not saying that we never talk about content. I'm not saying that we just say that and then end the meeting, right? There's still a place to talk about the nuances of, you know, whatever it is, polygamy or the racially based priesthood restriction or whatever. But the point is just to say that we need to let people who have concerns know that we recognize the virtuous impulse behind the concern. Because at least in my experience, there almost always is one. When deeply felt concerns come to the fore, it is almost always, and ironically, often those those impulses, those righteous impulses behind the concerns often come precisely because the person was raised in the church, right? And precisely because they have such a strongly honed moral compass from, at least in part, from years of sitting in Sunday school lessons and hearing sacrament meeting talks and all the rest of it. And so us recognizing that allows them to know, oh, this is a person on my team, right? But by the same token, if someone comes talking to me about the racially based temple and priesthood restriction, my first inclination may be to say, well, but this and then, you know, whatever. But if instead I say, do you know what? I have to let you know, it breaks my heart. It really breaks my heart that there were so many years when just because of the color of their skin, there were people who were kept from temple blessings because precisely because I value temple blessings, it breaks my heart. Just that statement it breaks my heart, in my opinion and experience, does a hundred times more Mm. to a person with that concern to let them say, oh, okay, this person gets me. I can have a discussion with this person. Yeah. You've you've established safety, right? Right. And then if we immediately start to say, well, this and well, that and well, the other thing. Yeah. And and that really is the, the first step is letting them know like, this is such a safe place. Like you could tell me anything and I wouldn't throw you out of this office or be mad or, and I used to have that as a bishop. I used to <laughs> tell that to people like this room, this bishop office is really special because you can actually come in here and say whatever you want. You can swear at the top of your lungs if you'd like. And I'm okay with that. You know, whatever you need to do in this room, I'm right here, you know, or mm-hmm. even just saying, I'm just so glad that you feel like you can come talk to me about this because it's obviously really heavy on your heart. And the fact that you'd see me as somebody you can talk to, wow, you know, we'll get to this other stuff later, but thank you so much for trusting me. 
Yeah. So I, I think a sort of useful way to summarize what you just so beautifully illustrated is empathy before certainty. If yeah. you put certainty before empathy, you're done before you start. But if empathy comes before certainty, then that, or maybe never certainty, maybe empathy before ambiguity, that's actually what it most often is. But if empathy comes first, whether it precedes ambiguity or certainty, that is much more likely to open a place for a productive discussion. Yeah. And that's so so crucial to mention, especially in the context of this conversation, because there are leaders out there who who value truth and our doctrines so highly, and they've changed their life. They've been such a blessing to them that sometimes it sounds like, hey, old man, you just need to like just get rid of the certainty thing, get rid of the truth claims, and let's just have this conversation of love and and hug and you know be done with it. But you're not saying that. You're saying. This is, if you want to reach this demographic, you need to start with that empathy and we'll get to the truth claims. We'll get to the, all the doctrines that are beautiful and awesome and sometimes a little bit messy, but we'll get to those. But this is a place to start in order to establish safety and move forward with the conversation. Yeah. So my, so my sixth grader has been bringing home recently worksheets where they have to work on what you may remember from, you know, sort of the very beginning of algebra order of operations, right? Oh yeah. Uh Order of operations are all those little things where you have to do the stuff inside the parentheses first and you have to write, there's an order, right? Because if you don't have the order, then the whole thing is off. And so this is at least an order of operations question. Now Hmm. I would also argue that it's actually more than that because of course the entryway covenant that we have into the church as formulated by Alma at the Waters of Mormon is to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort, which is to say that empathy is our founding covenantal virtue. And so I would say that as a church leader, when I put empathy before, whether it's ambiguity or certainty, it is not just a, this is not like a PR move. This is actually a way that I keep my covenants. This is me saying, oh my gosh, just as you were just articulating, I can tell how heavily this is weighing upon your heart. Yeah let it weigh upon my heart too. And the irony of this is that in almost every case where I have done this, where I have sat with as witness to the heaviness that this, whatever it is, places upon the heart of the person that I am talking to, the result of it is that I find my heart changed too. So that instead of what we sometimes mistakenly think in the church is that like the leader is going to do a thing that changes the whatever person who's coming to them for counsel. What I have most often found is that it's my own heart that is changed and, and I learn and become a different, better Christian disciple because of the things that I learn in that exchange. Yeah. I, I love that order of operations example because you can approach an algebra problem with your own order of operations or what you think is, but you will always get a different answer than what somebody else's approach. I mean, it's so crucial that order of operations rather than just knowing two plus two equals four, you know? And even Jesus demonstrates this, right? Before he raises Lazarus, even though he, as best we can tell, knows he will raise him, he weeps, Yeah. right? Mm. So the weeping is the first order of operation. Raising Lazarus comes after. Yeah. Rather than telling the the crowd, hey, there's nothing to worry about. Jesus is there. Like, no, yeah, you know that. Hey, guys, I got this. <laughs> not a problem. Don't worry yeah. about it. Right? That is not the answer. Yeah, uh, I love that. Very helpful. So maybe talk to the the just America. Well, let, let me let me back up a little bit with and obviously this this article by uh, George Packer. He was talking in the context of American politics and 
culture and society and whatnot. And, and maybe it doesn't fit perfectly if you move it over to a, a religion community thing, but is there, what would be examples like generalities of what a free, a free Latter-day Saint looks like, or a real Latter-day Saint or a smaller Latter-day Saint? I think we've articulated, you've articulated pretty well, the just Latter-day Saint, what they look like. Well, yeah. So I think that this becomes all the more complicated because for a bunch of complicated historical, cultural, social reasons that I'm, you know, I'm not a professional historian, but if you're familiar with the history, it's pretty clear. In the late 20th century, the church became very uncomfortably, at least associated with, if not actually linked to a certain brand of United States political conservatism, right? Mm -hmm. To the point that it came to be understood among in many quarters in the church that the only right or true way to be a Latter-day Saint was to be a U.S. conservative Republican. Hmm. And now, of course, that's contradicted by, you know, decades of announcements read over the pulpit about that you know, the church is nonpartisan and that all major political parties reflect, you know, major principles of the gospel. But there had been for a long time, this sort of funny kind of like, well, we know they say that, but that's not what they really mean, right? <laughs> of course, everybody knows that you have to be a Republican. Yeah. This sort of weird cultural attitude. I think that partly for that, I mean, I don't want to pretend to know the reasons that general authorities speak the way they do, but you could imagine that that might be one force that has influenced what I think has been a much more forceful approach to this matter over the pulpit in the last five years, right? So the most famous example being President Oaks's talk about the Constitution in General Conference, where he was very, very clear that no member of the church should ever say to another member of the church, oh, well, don't you know that you can't be a good member of the church and a fill in the blank, let's say, member of the Democratic Party, right? Mm -hmm. And so all of this is to say that I think that free America and real America Part of the issue here is that there is an unarticulated cultural assumption that those are more easily compatible with the gospel than just America is, yeah. right? Because real America, there is a, a sense that, you know, we were talking earlier about this dynamic that we often set up in the church between we, the peculiar people, and the evil world. That maps pretty easily onto the real America rhetoric, right? Because real America is this idea that before, right, we previously, we were this great nation, and we've just fallen away from it, and we need to get back to it. That kind of sounds like, well, the world is encroaching on us. And what we need to do is we need to get back to a purer form of what it means to need to be America. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that there's no truth to real America. I do think that there are things that we did better in the past that we would be better to get back to. I want to be clear about that. And actually, I should say in this is an important point to make that I don't think I've made yet. I'm not arguing that any of the these narratives is right. I think that what I have argued before is that in the gospel, we have a capital N big picture narrative, which is what we often refer to as the plan of salvation, right? That's the that's the capital N narrative. All of these other things, just America, free America, smart America, real America, these are little N narratives that we have come up with to try to figure out a way to navigate in the world that we think best approximates what we would do if we always remembered the capital N grand narrative, right? The plan of salvation. But all little N narratives are imperfect. All of them are, if you will, quote unquote, wrong, 
right? All of them have problems. None of them is going to bring about Zion. None of them is perfect. None of them leads to perfect policy prescriptions because there are no perfect policy prescriptions, right? So just America, if you want to say, well, just America is wrong. Well, of course it's wrong. They're all wrong, right? I mean, that's yeah. the nature of little end <laughs> political narratives. Yeah. But all of that is to say that, so that's the, so the way that real America maps onto the gospel is pretty clear, right? Because of what I just said. Similarly, free America, it's very easy to say, well, the gospel emphasizes choice and accountability. And that's all we're saying. And free America is that people should be allowed to make their own choices. Therefore, free America is consonant with gospel values because it emphasizes the ability to make choices, right? Yeah. And even smart America, it's a little bit, maybe a little bit less of a intuitive fit, but you can make an argument. You can say, well, you know, the glory of God is intelligence. You know, there's a this kind of suggestion in the Book of Mormon that if you keep the commandments, you will prosper, which some people then, you know, interpret that to mean that if you keep the commandments, you'll, I don't know, get into Harvard and make a lot of money or something, <laughs> right? And so that, again, feels like it kind of has this kind of vague scriptural support for smart America. But I think that the issue is that for older people who may have grown up thinking that their, whichever of those three narratives was the one that fit, that felt most intuitive to them, they've had a long time to kind of come up with ways to map that onto what they believe about the gospel and to feel that those two things kind of support each other. But because just America is relatively new, I think that a lot of older people who belong to free or real or smart America then end up looking at young people who belong to just America and they say, oh, that's not, that's wrong, right? Like whatever, even though I may have never articulated why my narrative maps well onto the gospel, that one clearly doesn't. And so then young people end up saying, oh, well, okay, if my deepest values can't be mapped onto the gospel, then I guess I need to leave because my deepest values are what they are and you're not going to convince me that they're wrong. And plus, they end up concluding wrongly, I think, but they end up concluding that the church is only a place for people who belong to real America or free America and the people who belong to just America don't have a place there. Yeah. Oh, that's so helpful. So helpful. So uh, talk to just America or just Latter-day Saints for me, because sometimes there's this feeling of it's the it's the old folks that need to change, right? Or or just America thinks, well, if we just wait it out long enough, the free uh, Latter-day Saints or real Latter-day, they'll just die off and then we can we can focus on justice type thing or, you know, and sometimes there's criticism that our, our prophets, seers and revelators are too old or sort of trapped in this, this old thinking here. And so sometimes there's this feeling of that us older people that need to understand the young people and then adjust accordingly. But what would you say to, to just America about approaching their bishop or stake president or whatever it be? Yeah. So there are a few things. The first one is that if I were talking to a young member of just America, the first thing I would want to say is that those righteous impulses that, in my experience, drive most people to belong to just America are precisely that. They are righteous. They are virtuous. And I think that they are a reflection of that person having a deeply good character. So the first thing, I, if I were talking to a member of Just America, the first thing that I would say is that I want you to understand that I believe that the impulses that drive you to want to be a member of Just America are righteous and that they find deep spiritual resonance within the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that your drive to make the 
the world a more equitable place to uh, shine a light on the plight of the marginalized and to make sure that the needs of the marginalized become more prominent in the way that we run society and the way that we run the church and the way that we run our daily interactions, those are deeply Christian. And they are shot through the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price and the words of modern prophets. And if you were sitting in my office, we could sit here for the next three hours and I could show you quote after quote after quote after quote after quote after quote after quote. So that's the first thing that I would want to say. The second thing that I would want to say is that yes, it is nonetheless true that all little n narratives have problems. None of them is perfect. And in fact, I would argue that one of the the saving graces of the church, one of the most powerful things that the church does is that it forces us to come into close interaction with people whose little n narratives are dramatically different from our own. So if you are in an elders quorum presidency, you, a devoted member of Just America, with an 80-year-old who is a lifelong member of real America and cannot understand how the United States is going to hell in a handbasket, that's a good thing. Because you being in that elders quorum presidency with that person is going to force, hopefully, if you let it, it will force you to learn from him and him to learn from you. And that's actually a good thing. I think that one inclination that has been vastly exacerbated by the rise of the digital age, and in particular by social media, especially Twitter, but really all social media, has been this sort of purity test approach to the world, which is to say, well, if you are not as devoted a member of free America as I am, then I don't want to be friends with you. If you are not as purely progressive in your politics as I am, then I don't want to be seen as your friend because I might be judged negatively for that or what have you, right? And so one of the things that I think that the church actually does that is really wonderful is that it helps us to overcome the compartmentalization and polarization that can happen because of social media and other ascendant ascendant forces. Now, having said that, I don't want to question the fact that if you are a devoted member, so to speak, of Just America, which is just to say that if equality and anti-racism and all the rest matter deeply to you, and you go and talk to your stake president, and your stake president is a devoted member of free America who just cannot for the life of him understand where on earth you are coming from with all of this you know, anti-racism nonsense or whatever. I don't for a moment want to be seen as saying that that's not hard or that that's not going to be difficult for you because of course it's going to be difficult for you because a person who is in a leadership position is not resonating with these impulses that originate so deep in your heart. And I want to validate and fully see the deep difficulty of that because it is really, really hard. At the same time, it is also true that even a wonderful, committed, devoted local leader does not represent the entirety of the gospel. And I mean... (laughs) 
at least I can say that with absolute certainty about any time I have been in any sort of leadership position, right? (laughs) Right. Like I'm just some guy, like I'm just, you know, Joe Schmo off the street corner. So I would be heart stricken to think that anybody might come to me with a concern. And then when I totally flubbed the answer, think, oh, well, if he flubbed the answer, then that means there was no good answer. Because at least in my case, it certainly doesn't mean that, right? And so I think that the last thing that I would say is that everybody, I feel like the one of the great take-home messages, so to speak, of the pandemic is that all of us need space and grace. Bishops need space and grace. Stake presidents need space and grace. Even apostles need space and grace. We all need space and grace. And so isn't it wonderful that we belong to a church and believe in a gospel that includes an atonement that applies equally to deacons and prophets and to general primary presidents. And I think they don't call them beehives anymore, but the (laughs) young women formerly known as beehives. But the point is that the atonement is meant to reach all of us. It is meant to offer grace to everybody, leaders and everybody else. Yeah, that's powerful. And I love how you articulate that because that, I mean, your approach of what, you know, real America or real Latter-day Saints can do for the just Latter-day Saints works the other way, right? Starting with empathy and loving them and approaching them and doing your best to understand where they're coming from. And the one thing with this leadership dynamic that concerns me at times is, you know, the leader with generally has, you know, quote unquote, the power and authority. And if they really want it a different way, they can make it a different way. And so we tend to hold back empathy because they're, they're the one in power or they're the leader, right? And even in, in the Bible, you think of the stories of Christ interacting with the Pharisees. Those were strong conversations. And so we like to, and, and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of their time. And so we pin that caricature on some of our, you know, our leaders. And we think, you know, I, I need to turn your tables here and to get my message across. And we maybe miss that empathy step by misunderstanding what Christ was doing and, and so forth. And so I, I mean, we can all just start with empathy and just try and understand regardless of what category you're in. And that's, and, and we need that interaction in order to grow and, and sanctify ourselves in the church, right? Yeah. So I, if I were going to recommend a second article for everyone to, to I love read, th- there was another article that was published maybe in the last six months by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. So Jonathan Haidt is like the world's leading expert on why people make the decisions that they do. And mm-hmm. so he wrote an article again in the Atlantic. I might have the name not quite right, but you could Google it and find it. It's something like why the last decade has been particularly stupid or the stupidest on record or something to that effect. (laughs) And basically what the argument that he makes is that the rise of the internet age and particularly social media, especially things like Twitter has led to this, what he, he compares it to everybody being given a BB gun, right? Because on Twitter, it's so easy to tweet out, you know, to quote tweet somebody else's tweet and criticize it. Right. Uh Or to say, oh, my gosh, how could, you know, quote, tweet a video of a political candidate and say, how could somebody be this stupid? Right. But so the point is that it's like we're all sitting there with BB guns and we just boom, 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 boom. We're just shooting all over the place. Right. So they're just like BBs flying in every direction. Right. This is we're talking on the day after the November 2022 elections. And you can see that on Twitter today. Right. It's just like BBs going everywhere. So there is a. Even the BB gun shooting, I think you can 
sense a righteous impulse behind it, right? Which is that if I'm a member of whatever, real, free, just America, and I see somebody who clearly is not embodying the values that are important to me, then I aim my BB gun, maybe not at the person themselves, but at the thing that they said or the thing that they did or their political platform or whatever. And it feels virtuous because it's a way of saying, well, that's wrong. So I'm going to, you know, sort of knock that down. But the issue is that Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms make shooting BBs so easy that we can fall into a place where, and then because shooting BBs can even have this kind of vaguely virtuous feel to it, right? That like, well, I'm more virtuous because I shot a BB at this thing that I consider to not be virtuous, that we can end up in a place where all we do anymore is shoot BBs. And the problem with that is that if that's all we do, then we never spend any time healing and we never spend any time constructing something, right? It's all about tearing down and it's never about building up. And I think that part of the point that that Dr. Haidt is making, and I think he's right, is that the 2020s, in the 2020s, we are much more adept at deconstructing than we are at constructing. And so I think that, again, one of the things, you know, because I, I can imagine, like if I were to sit, if you imagine like a Twitter version of a ward council, right? If I were to like live tweet a word council, most things that are said in word council are inane or stupid or, or like the person who says them is not very eloquent or like the person who says them is a bigot or, or like whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I could like live tweet up the wazoo about, oh my gosh, brother Smith said this and oh my gosh, sister Smith was such and such and whatever, right? And I could just, you know, fire BBs all day long. But the thing about it is that for all of the imperfections of all of the people sitting in that word council, it is still the case that, you know, I'm sure there are exceptions, but in most cases, these are people who are freely giving of their time, trying to make the world a better place. They're trying to improve the lives of the people who are under their stewardship. And however imperfect they are, and again, this is not to discount that they can cause real harm and that, you know, their words can cause problems and everything else. But it's just to say that all of those imperfections, imperfections notwithstanding, they're trying, right? They are consecrating their time and their abilities to try to bless the people under their stewardship. And I think that sometimes in the age of Twitter and TikTok, we have become, we have rendered ourselves blind to see the virtue of people who, though imperfect, are really trying. And I think that that's a thing that we could work on recovering together. Yeah, that's powerful. Before we wrap up, I have one more question, or I'd love to hear your input on this, because I totally agree, like, you know, starting with empathy and really understanding these different dynamics or values that people are, are coming from with the best intentions and you know, of course, we should just be so loving and empathetic and making a safe place for these individuals, especially as leaders, as they come in and talk with us. I guess I worry sometimes with this rising generation that like there's so much emphasis on just justice and fairness that that I don't see how it can like work without them stepping out of that because church history is messy and doctrine is, you know, messy at times or unclear or and if they continue in this path, I like almost want to sometimes sit them down and I'm like, I love you and so much empathy. But if you continue down this path, like 
without having this more nuanced approach to justice in relation to the gospel and eternal covenants and whatnot, it just doesn't work. And I then and then I worry when I see so many young people leaving the church, I'm just like, ah, like just stop it with the justice thing for a minute. But again, then I fall into those old old traps, right? So I mean, is it possible for someone to stay in this just America and flourish in, in the, the gospel and, and so forth? Well, so yeah, so I think there are a couple of things to think about there. The first one is that I would actually argue that one of the most destructive ideas in the way that we often think about the gospel is the fairy tale version of the gospel. The issue is that many of us, if we're honest about it, grew up at least believing that we had been taught that the fairy tale was the thing, mm-hmm. right? And so it, the fairy tale version, I, I mean, no disrespect to Liz Lemon Swindle or anyone else, but I'm just giving an example. There are Liz Lemon Swindle paintings that appear to depict Joseph and Emma as a sort of monogamous, idyllic Victorian couple. And if you grew up with that as your understanding of the totality of their relationship, then when you learn about Joseph Smith's polygamy, it's difficult for that to not be pretty shattering, right? Because it's, you grew up with a version of the gospel that did not allow for messiness, that had no space for imperfections or or even mistakes. And, and so therefore, when you then learn about a version of the gospel that is messy and that does involve, you know, a lot of human flaw, there's no give, there's no flexibility, right? You, you just, mm-hmm. it's sort of the fairy tale or it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And so I actually think that a big part of this is that we need to do a better job as a church because yes, it is true that there is a version, just like there's a version of free America and uh, real America and smart America that are toxic. There is a version of just America that is toxic, right? Mm-hmm. If justice yeah. is the only thing that you care about, or if you turn the precepts of just America into a purity test and anybody who doesn't pass your version of the charity test of the purity test has to be kicked out of the group, then that's the very same behavior that you're feeling frustrated that you think people at church are doing to LGBT people or whatever else, right? Like right. it can yeah. become its own, its own hall of mirrors, yeah. its own problem. Mm-hmm. But even though those problems can show up, the point that I want to make is that I, I still think that the right now, at least the burden of change is largely upon members of the church who either overtly or even tacitly perpetuate the fairy tale version of the gospel, Hmm. right? We need to open up a world inside of the church that embraces the fact that everything's a mess and everybody's imperfect. Joseph Smith's a mess. Brigham Young's a mess. We're all a mess, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly when I was a bishop, I was a mess. Like everybody's a mess and everything is messy. And we need to, it may sound sacrilegious or flippant to say that past prophets are a mess, but I don't, I don't mean it in a flippant way. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. I'm not trying to undermine anybody's testimony. 
that's just reality, right? Like if you read the scriptures, there is no version of the scriptures that paints prophets as perfect people. Like the perfect example of this is Nephi, right? Like we often act as if the only thing that Nephi ever said was I will go and do, as if that's the totality of his ministry. And then we act as if he's this like cardboard figure who has no nuance or depth or complexity to him, which is just absolute baloney if you read the scriptural record, right? If you read Second <laughs> Nephi yeah. chapter 4, there is absolutely no way to read Nephi's psalm and come away with the impression that he was a cardboard cutout that just marched around saying, I will go and do all day. That doesn't undermine the importance or the reality of his obedience and his sacrifice and everything else. But it's just to say that the, the, the scriptural record is clear that he was a complex mortal person who made mistakes and felt terrible for his mistakes, who grappled with his own inadequacy and his own mortality and his own you know, bad desires and on and on and on and on and on and on. And so all of this is to say that I actually think that one of the most important shifts, and, and we are starting to do this, I want to be clear, like recent, yeah. you know, church uh, curricula and, and whatever is, you know, significantly more nuanced than it was in previous eras. Nonetheless, I feel like at this point, our sort of shared cultural rhetoric, at least in the United States, is still lagging pretty far behind actually what the curricula teaches, because the curricula teaches, I think, what I was just saying, in effect. And yet we still cling. We love fairy tales. And it's understandable, right? Everybody loves fairy tales because you know who the good guys are. You know who the bad guys are. The good guys get rewarded. The bad guys get punished. And then everybody lives happily, or at least the good people live happily ever after, right? Like there's an intuitive moral appeal to fairy tales. But we have got to leave the fairy tales behind and embrace the messiness that is the reality of the unfolding of the restored gospel or else, because the thing is that in past years, the messiness could maybe sometimes be avoided, but it no longer can. Everybody's going to become acquainted with the messiness, whether we want them to or not. And so our embracing it and articulating a, a theology that accounts for that messiness is absolutely critical. Mm, that's powerful. And, and my mind goes back to, you know, this, the Lazarus story that we often want to look at. Isn't this amazing that Christ raised Lazarus from the dead? Like there's the, you know, there's the storybook ending of it all. When in reality, like he cried with them before he did all that. And that's like the power of the savior that like, regardless of whether he can fix it all, he's still willing to sit and cry with us. And no, to me, and, that's so redemptive. No, it is totally redemptive. And I actually think that, you know, Terrell and Fiona Givens and others, but especially those two, right? Like for my mm -hmm. money, the most powerful church book that's come out in the last half century is The God Who Weeps for mm -hmm. precisely that reason. Yeah. Because there is a, this almost irresistible cultural drift that wants us to believe that what the church or the gospel offer are perfection. It's a ZCMI for those who remember that when it still existed. It's a <laughs> yeah. catalog, right? Uh -huh. It's a Donny Osmond guy and a, you know, supermodel woman posing in front of the temple with beatific light shining on them <laughs> as if that were the whole of, you yeah. know, reality in the church. And that's both ridiculous and totally toxic because the reality is not that the reality is that the the gospel embraces the messiness and then offers us both heavenly parents Allah the story in Moses chapter 7 and the god weeping over over the people at the time of Enoch that and then 
also a savior who you can make a very strong argument that the defining virtue of the savior's atonement is his perfect empathy, right? That's what Alma 7, 11 through 13 is about. That's what we learn about in King Mosiah's or King Benjamin's sermon. It is that empathy that defines their divinity. And so I think going back to the empathy before ambiguity or certainty piece, when we as leaders experience and embody that empathy for the people who come to us for counsel or repentance or whatever it is, I believe that we are joining the Savior in his work when we do that. Mm. Well, Tyler, this has been such a blessing in my life to have this conversation. The fact that I get to share it uh, with others is really encouraging. And I'll even go as far as say that you hit Mary's standard. She was not speaking with any hyperbole here. I think it was such a a revolutionary uh, episode as as she used the word. So thank you so much. We could debate that point, but since (laughs) our time is gone, I'll just say thank you. Awesome. Well, is there any, if people want to learn more about you, your writing or anything or attend your institute class, if you teach institute still or whatnot, I mean, where where would you send people if they want to learn more about you? There's not much more to learn. So (laughs) unless you have cancer, right? (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully you never have to learn about me in that sense, but I'm, Yeah. I mean, if there are ways that I can help people, I'm happy to try to help. Awesome. Well, last question I have for you, Tyler, is uh, just going back to your experience as a leader, especially maybe serving as a bishop. How's being a leader helps you be a better follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, yeah. So the only thing that I changed about the bishop's office during the time that I was bishop was that, and I hope this doesn't get me in trouble. I know there was some church directive about what art is supposed to hang in the hallways, but I figured the bishop's office was not yeah. in the hallways. So I, was I, I agree. I agree. So anyway, the only thing that I changed in the bishop's office, which frankly is quite ugly, the Stanford first word bishop's office is really ugly. But the only thing that I changed during the time that I was there was that I hung a print about, I don't know, eight by 13 or something of a pencil sketch from Rembrandt of the prodigal son. And what I would always tell people with more poignance toward the end of my time as bishop than I did towards the beginning was that the, you know, as bishop, right? So I had people coming to me all the time to talk about things of which they wanted to repent. And the, you know, of course, there is a sense in which a bishop is set apart as a judge in Israel, and I'm not making light of that idea. But there is, in addition to that, this sort of cultural idea that has kind of grafted itself onto that, that the bishop must be some, I don't know, you know, especially righteous or special or or something person who is then helping the less righteous people to get righteous again or something to that effect. And I'm not, of course, suggesting that bishops are bad people or anything else, but the, but what I am suggesting is this, that there was a there's a wonderful old Elder Holland talk which I think the actual title of the talk, but maybe this is just the title that I've given it because I've listened to it so many times, but what I think it's called is The Other Prodigal. And basically he talks about how both the prodigal son and, quote, the good son, unquote, actually are making the same journey, which is a journey away from the father and then a journey back to the father, even though the one son's journey is sort of more obvious or you know, kind of hits you in the face more than the other ones. But all of that is to say that the in particular, working with people as they sought to come back into the Father's presence, the, so to speak, metaphorically, whatever, the 
truth that distilled upon my soul as the dews from heaven over and over and over and over again is we are all prodigals. And, you know, obviously I do not now and never will know what it's like to be a prophet or an apostle or anything else. And so I don't, I want to be careful sort of extending the analogy too far to a place that I can't speak to from firsthand experience. But it, it feel, I mean, I think it is theologically a universal truth. And at least insofar as my experience can be regarded, it was absolutely the truth that far from, you know, thinking, well, now I, the spiritual superior will help you, the spiritual inferior to get right with God or something that when I worked with somebody as a bishop, I just was overwhelmed by the sense that we are all prodigals, or as King Benjamin has it, we are all beggars. And so when I see that pencil, that Rembrandt pencil sketch, the thing that being the bishop taught me is that I am the son always coming back and dressed in rags and needing the grace that is offered through the perfect love of heavenly parents and a savior who also loves us perfectly. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. Remember to access the Questioning Saints library for 14 days. Visit leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.